Hawks fans, wherever you may be. Welcome inside the Hawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alvstad, and featuring 12thManRising.com editor and football analyst, Keith Myers. Hey, Seahawks fans, hello and welcome. It's the Hawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alvstad. I'm here again with Keith Myers. Today we're recording in the afternoon, so good afternoon, Good afternoon. I know this is this is different. Usually we record in the morning, and I'm sitting here sipping coffee. And today um, it's in the afternoon, and I'm sitting here sipping something that's of the same color and similar bitterness qualities. But it's okay because it's afternoon and not morning. Wow, that that is amazing. That's great. I love that. So we'll see. I'm going to keep tabs on you. I'm I'm just letting you know right now that if I'm I'm seeing a little funky business going on, I'm, I no, know that you've had more I, than one. I don't have that much here. I've We're saving that eight, for next week, ounces, Keith. So. Saving it for next week. <laughs> yeah, ne- next week's next week's going to be our um, beer and tailgating episode. So uh, yeah, come back. I'll cover that, the beer. We, we, I'll cover the beer part, and you'll cover the tailgating part. I thought I was the beer expert here. Well, no, you're bringing so. the beer. <laughs> I'm tasting the beer. I you're, thought we were you're... drinking the beer. <laughs> okay, okay. Gosh darn it. Okay. Yeah, so that is going to be an amazing episode because it's going to be a lot of fun. But we're still going to be serious about what we're talking about. And we're going to kind of talk about our expectations for the year coming up. And we're going to kind of take all the things that we've been talking about in the podcast since February, start of the off season, and uh, to kind of tie them all together and, and tell you what we think about the upcoming season. And... Uh, it should be a great show. It should be a lot of fun, too. Um, today, we're going to do a part two episode on Seattle coaches. Uh, we were only able to get through four guys plus, uh, plus uh, an assistant coach uh, last week in last week's episode, and we went like a, an hour and 10 minutes on it. So <laughs> this week, I think we're going to go a little less time, but we're going to cover the remaining uh, staff or some key staff members um, that we didn't get to last week. Um, but first, uh, in the news this week, uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the only thing of note that I really uh, saw, which was that Russell Wilson uh, is starting his uh, quarterback academy. Um, and he's partnering with Jay Keeps, actually, recently let go from the Seattle Seahawks. Um, but uh, Russell and uh, Jake have spent a couple of seasons kind of working together in tandem. Jake on the practice squad. So they've been become quite familiar uh, with each other, and also under uh, Pete Carroll's uh, system, they've kind of developed this uh, this program into an academy, a year round academy, and they hope to push uh, quite a few quarterbacks through there every year from all over the country. In fact, all over the world. It, 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 I think Russell Wilson said that he was traveling to China this next year to see if there was a good location there to have a camp. In China, which I thought was really amazing. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I think you know, for for Russell Wilson, this is kind of an ideal thing for him because I really do think that it's important for him um, to have a legacy and a personal legacy that goes beyond football. Um, while this is focused on quarterback skills and so forth, I think the idea behind this academy is that he wanted to bring more life skills into it some more leadership type things and so forth. So I thought it was a really cool thing. Yeah. I've heard uh, some very good things about his academy. And I know that um, a year ago, 
think it was a year ago, it might have been two years ago, uh, he, he had a local academy uh, that was taking place at the same time as Richard Sherman's softball game. And so he actually showed up at Sherman's game for like 15, 20 minutes, got out there, um, won the home run derby, got an at-bat, hit, you know, got himself a double, and then left because he had to <laughs> run back to uh, his quarterback academy. Because he had all, I mean, he has other coaches and there, there are people who run it and he's kind of there, he oversees things, but he didn't feel right about not being present and you know these kids are playing are paying for or some of them are some of them aren't but the the whole thing is part of the experience is being getting a chance to be around him and yes. he saw that recognized it wanted to make sure that he didn't screw that up and was there for the kids and i thought that was pretty cool yeah and then this one he's the uh, ceo and founder officially mm-hmm. that's his official title um and then jake heaps is actually the chief administrative officer, excuse me, and head quarterback coach of the academy. Um, So it sounds like Jake, with that sort of a job, would be done with football, at least at a professional level, and kind of assumed that he's really not going to make it at Mm -hmm. this point. He's tried his level best, and he's going into a partner with Russell Wilson on this thing. And Jake's, Jake's a real good guy, too. Um, but that's quite a quite a job and quite a partnership there, and so it, sh- it should be interesting. I think Russell Wilson will uh, probably make special appearances and so forth. I would imagine he yeah, also talked about having the academy uh, use more virtual technology. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that we'll use pre-recorded videos and that sort of a thing to to have him present there or have a presence there without actually having to physically be there on uh, most of the days. I would imagine. Well, yeah, and part of it is one of the things that he said is that he he doesn't want to just limit the opportunities for the kids um, during the, his off season. He wants to be able to have these kind of things, you know, throughout the year. And if he's going to do that, he can't uh, always be there because he has a job, you know, being the quarterback of the Seahawks and trying to win Super Bowls, and uh, that's got to come first. So I could see him taking a step back a little bit in terms of his own involvement. And that's probably why he hired Jake, uh, to, to, you know, to be the, the point guy on some of it. And, right. But at the same time, he, just from what I've seen, you know, from a couple of years ago during that, uh, that other event was how serious he takes it and how much he understands that, you know, some of these kids are going, are coming there because his name is attached to it. And so sure. he has he has to take that aspect of it seriously too. Well, and in addition, it would you know academies like this are based on um, all the teachings around you know the Russell Wilson way, if mm-hmm. you will. So they'll have the always compete stuff, uh, you know, that he's brought in from the Pete Carroll system. He's he'll use all of his Seahawks experience. He'll bring in all of the Russell Wilson isms that he's become famous for. Um, like no time to sleep, all that kind of junk, and they'll put it into a basically a a notebook or a you know a a book um, to teach the kids Russell Wait, the, the Russell. Are you are, are you saying that one hundred yards is one hundred yards? <laughs> no, are, time, are, no time are, to are, sleep, are, baby. No time you to saying, sleep. Are you saying he's going to tell people to go one and zero oh this week? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it is it is what it is. But at the same time, we're so used to that kind of talk. Maybe it's getting a little old for us. Uh, but for these young kids coming up, um, I think it's a it's a decent um, teachable thing, and it's a decent platform to aspire to. See, I, my thing is, if um, at first it was like, okay, he said these things, and it was weird, it was a little cliche, and then it got really tiresome, yep. and then it came back around, and now it's just simply entertaining. And yep. we talk about um, having Russell like Wilson's a, check- a robot. <laughs> yeah, the, or and, and we or we start talking about the checklists, and we go, okay, wait, he, you missed this one. We got to come back around. Yeah, let's ask him a question. Wait, so our. <laughs> So you're saying the separation is in what exactly? Because he'd missed it. So we got to give him, you know, an opportunity for the separation is in the preparation cliche. Uh, and so it's just kind of, it's, to me, it's become more fun and less annoying um, as it keeps going. So it's kind of aged well. Yeah, it, it's, you're right. You know, and to me, I don't, I don't pay attention to it as probably as much as you do. And so I don't, it doesn't bother me. And I, you know what? And he's such a good, genuine person um, and, a, and a good guy. I think it comes from a, from a good spot. And I just kind of take it like that. Yeah. And I mean, it works. I mean, people... good gosh, he's a Pro Bowl caliber uh, quarterback, probably the best quarterback in our franchise history. He could uh, be on the periphery of, of being looked at as a Hall of Fame quarterback if he continues on the same trajectory. Um, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think the people who are around Wilson recognize that, yes, he speaks in some of these cliches, but he really believes them. And he's not just mm. like, he's not just trying right. to be this poster boy or this, you know, perfect thing that never says anything wrong or anything like that. He's just, it really just is who he is. He's actually genuinely that boring. Um, and so the, the, the people who, the people who actually start to have a, people who have a problem with the cliches and all of that are the people who are outside of things a little bit, you know, national guys or people who cover other teams and they just listen to him and they just want to gag because it's boring yeah. and whatever. No, I'm sure um, it's annoying as heck, especially oh, for yeah. 49er fans. Mm-hmm. They, they, they do not like him because he wins. He wins, man. They can, yeah. They can continue to hate him because he's going to continue to winning, and that's all that really matters. Yeah, so, so sign your sign your kids up for the Russell Wilson QB Academy at a awesome. facility near you soon, probably. So such a, we we are such a bad advertisement for that. <laughs> so those the, those of you out there that are thinking about having us read advertisements on our show, well, you just got a preview. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we'd be really good at that. I want you to know. We would. We as would. long as it's as long as it's, you know, I've got words in front of my face. I'm not going to go off the script. I'm going to I'm going to sell your product and I'm going to make it sound really good and people are going to buy it. Yes. So, you want how, us to do that. that? Have fun yeah. with that. Um, okay, so let's actually talk can we actually do our show? Cuz it's like we're just goofing off here. We actually have something to talk about this week. So, um, this week we are we are taking a deeper dive on the, the the second cut of the coaches staff on the Seattle Seahawks 
And um, where did you want to start today, Keith? I think maybe we should start with a somewhat familiar name, since a lot of these names are unfamiliar. Uh, Heath Farwell is a name that uh, Seahawks fans will recognize if you've been following the team the last 10 years or so. Uh, previous um, linebacker with the team. I joined the coaching staff uh, a couple years ago as a special teams assistant I don't know what the official title was, but um, had his hand there uh, with the special teams and so forth. Um, talk to me a little bit about his role, how it's evolved, where he's at, you know, in the in the staff chain today, and um, talk a little bit about um, special teams. Well, so and, this, within the spe- special teams is a weird uh, area of the team because everybody on the special teams, with the exception of the punter, the kicker, the long snapper have other jobs. Um, and so they, they work out, you know, they spend most of their time with, uh, the cornerbacks because they're also a backup cornerback and that kind of stuff. So you end up having to make an impact, keep things organized and all of that. Um, when you don't get a chance to meet with the guys, cause you don't have a position group that, uh, and you don't have, uh, a lot as much time. And, so it, it's a it's a very different beast as far as coaching and that kind of stuff. And a guy like Heath Farwell made his entire career out of being really good at getting downfield and tackling people on special teams. Yes. And because uh, let's face it, as a linebacker, you're not going to find many guys who are that just genuinely not worthwhile on the field. When he came on on defense... It was you were either winning by fifty, or that you'd put up fifty. If you go back to that's um, right those those games in like 2012 where the Seahawks were putting up fifty spots. Sure, um, but conversely, he's a two-time special teams captain, you know, yes. in, in Seattle. So yes. he, he definitely carved out a role. Yeah, so he he is one of those guys that is he has another job in on paper on the roster he's listed as a linebacker but he was entirely a special teams guru they brought him in for that he excelled at that uh they loved what he brought to the team he was a captain he led everyone um and it wasn't just a matter of oh he was really good so they made him a captain like he was a leader he was a guy that other players rallied around and really looked up to and he pushed them to be better and he is the type of guy who makes a very good coach because he's a motivator, he's smart, he knows the job, he can help people get better um, as long as they're willing to listen because he really knows that aspect. He can really explain uh, you know, how to get around uh, when you have two guys out there trying to, to block you as the gunner, how to get through them or get around them, how to uh, not get caught up on the blocking and get downfield but still stay in your lane on kick coverage. He's the type of guy who can really teach that stuff because he knows it inside and out. And that's what the and, role... And those special teams that, that he was on when uh, he was here in Seattle between 2011 and 2014 were top 10 special teams units. Yes, they were very good. And he was one of the reasons why they were very good. Um, and so people just don't think of that. The, the special teams are like, oh, well, it was because, you know, Hashka wasn't missing kicks and it was hitting all those 50-yarders and because John Ryan's awesome at what he does. But... It doesn't matter how good John Ryan is at punting the ball if we don't have someone who can get downfield and force that fair catch. And for a lot of that, it was Heath Farwell who was the guy who excelled at doing that. Um, And so that was him as a player, but that's what he's teaching now as a coach. 
And it, they have him working with individuals. He's teaching skills. He's teaching fundamentals. But he's also leading and motivating and doing the kinds of things that you get from a position coach. Uh, but he's doing it for the special teams unit, which is pretty cool. And it's not something that you always see uh, that teams have as a guy that can really motivate the, the special teamers. And that's the role that he has. It's really kind of a unique one. It's a special one. And it is one that he's absolutely born to do. So he's teamed up with Brian Schneider, who's actually the special teams coordinator for the team. So uh, he Farwell uh, is the assistant to Brian Schneider. Now, Brian's mm-hmm. been with the team since 2010, basically mm-hmm. since uh, Pete Carroll started. Yep. Um, so he's eight seasons with us here. Um, and, he, and he coached it. He came from USC. So he's been with uh, Pete for quite a long time. I have a question, though, with Brian Schneider. Uh, and we can talk about Brian as, as a coach um, and, and Heath as well. And I'm just wondering what your take is on how our special teams have kind of uh, dipped down a few notches since the the heyday in 2013-14. Well, I think what you have to look at with that is um, what they're working with. And the Seahawks in 2012-13-14 were super deep. They had guys that would start on other teams as like the third or fourth string guys because that, that roster was so loaded. And so you had guys like uh, Byron Maxwell, who wasn't even a starter. So he was getting, he was out there on special teams, like every special teams play. And then he became a starter later in the year. It right. was a big part of, you know, a big part of well, that Super Pete's Bowl Well, consistently had uh, some of their star players play on special teams all the time. Yeah. You get like you... Richard Sherman's out there all the time. Yeah. If you watch um, Richard Sherman and Doug Baldwin are two guys you see coming off the edge on field goal block situations, which is pretty incredible because those are two of the team's stars. Those are two of the team's like core players. And the last thing you'd want is to see either of them get injured on a special teams play where you could stick a backup out there and get, you know, almost the same quality. But Pete wants the starters out there if he can do it because there tend to be better athletes and better football players and that kind of thing. How he, unique is that in the NFL? It's very course. unique. It's very unique. The the amount of uh, the amount of times that you see the starter, like a starting caliber player, like Earl Thomas or or Cam Chancellor, out there on special teams is pretty rare. Um, you usually don't see that from other teams. So when you see guys like um, Bobby Wagner jumping over the line to block a kick. Um, you could recognize that the team yeah. has him in there to do that, but he, that's not that's not something that he would be doing if he was on another roster. So, but the thing is, that the team also doesn't do that, and on every special teams instance, they don't leave like all of their starters out there. They might have one or two, and they let they they get contributions from their best players. But it, the special teams unit is still filled in primarily by backups. Right. If you're, and we just haven't had the, the, the depth that we've had in the last few years. And consequently, those special teams have been middling average yeah, they just, in the they last just have, few years. They just haven't been that good. And so, and then you, you, you throw in some other factors where the, the last couple of years, the Seahawks have dealt with a ton of injuries. I mean, um, Steve Terrell's, his value on the roster was the fact that he had a lot of speed and was good at getting downfield on kickoffs to 
um, get down the field and disrupt the kickoff returns. Like that was kind of his value on the roster. Well, now he's the starting free safety. And not only is that a major drop off from Earl Thomas, but now he's not out there on every kickoff because he has to be, you know, ready to play on defense. So then they have somebody else in there who's not quite as right. fast and not quite as experienced in that particular role. And so but it did give an opportunity for like a Nico Thorpe to emerge last year. Yes. Um, now where, where they had a harder time, I thought as, as a special team unit, wasn't the, the gunners necessarily or the tackling per se. It was, um, it was the returning. It was, well, it was that, but it was also trying to, uh, to, um, to oh, hike the, the ball. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. And that middle, that the middle of our line on our kickoffs or not kickoffs, but uh, on our field punts goals and on our field goals yeah. was highly susceptible. And we had it was. multiple blocks last year against us, which was very concerning, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know if you can tie that into our long snapper last year that we had See, issues with, but I don't, I, I was going to look this up and I, I forgot, but um, if memory serves me correctly, all every single one of the blocks that the team had came when uh, Nolan Freeze was the long snapper, and once he got hurt, and they had to bring in Ott to be the long snapper, there was not a single block. I think there was a miss, but not a block. Um, not a it, big sample size there, but it's, uh, it's you not. had the you had the sense though that Ott was well, going to be a big improvement it, there. And so, and when I go through and I, I, I've because I've watched I've watched the tape of it because you get the sense that it's. Um, that it was Nolan Freeze that was causing a lot of those problems. But it is one thing to have that perception just watching the games. It's another to go back and actually watch the tape and physically look at each block and where the guy came from who blocked it and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And he was not the only problem. He was a problem. So you had a lot of bad snaps. Uh, John what Ryan... What was concerning for me, though, Keith, was it didn't get solved. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, we had early problems in the year, but these problems continued throughout the year. They just All never the way got to better. the very end. No, you're right. Yeah, the and I, to me that I put that on um, Brian Snyder, the special teams coordinator, because it's it's part of his job to recognize that this just isn't going to work, and he needed to go to John Snyder, the general manager, and says we need to make a change, and so they could have brought in somebody like Ott or. Uh, brought back Clint Gresham or really anyone um, and brought them in to compete, to win the job, either to push freeze uh, over a, a week and then they let the let it yep. be decided at, um, you know, on Friday and whether you activate the new player and cut freeze or whether you, you know, um, keep it the way it is. But they, they could have done that kind of stuff throughout the season <clears> and they chose not to. And we don't know. What we don't know is if Brian Schneider had gone to John Snyder and said, do this, and, and John just was like, no, I want to stick this out, or if Brian Schneider just never asked. Yeah, if he never I mean, asked, was, that's a problem. It was it was one of those uh, issues on the team, besides the offensive line, that was the most pressing, obvious issue that never seemed to get corrected. And it seems like every year uh, a Pete uh, Carroll-coached team has one of these issues, whether it's we didn't bring a fullback in soon enough, and you know that that issue, we have the offensive line issue, we had the special teams issue, we had the Drew Nowak situation at center that went too long. Is this a Pete Carroll 
um, kind of a loyalty situation? Yes. It is because what you have is um, what you have is you have Pete delegating the these kind of uh, decisions to his coaches. His coaches know the guy's best. He they're the ones in the meeting rooms every day. They're the ones who know the guys. They're the ones who see every single rep of every single practice. Yeah. Um, they're the ones who study the film for their individual players in the most detail. So he lets the those coaches make those decisions. And I'm I actually don't have a problem with that. I think that is a sign of good coaching. Um the problem is is that when you're like, okay, I'm gonna let um Tom Cable pick his guys and he's gonna ch- he's gonna choose who plays and when. And then you have a situation where he picks Drew Nowak and it's really obvious or very early that that's not going to work. And it just persists and it persists and it persists. And he's a little slow at stepping in and being like, okay, yeah, this, th- we need to make a change here because this isn't working. Um, he needs to have a little bit better oversight and, you know, willingness, but he's patient and he's willing to, write it out because if if his coach is making that decision there's got to be a reason for it so let's wait it out and see if we can, if the player turns it around yeah, yeah um and so that and that kind of faith isn't i don't consider it a negative for um for Pete it's, Carroll it's a it is a fine line it and is. i agree with you cuz it's easy to sit back as a fan and identify these issues and say yes this is an issue it's much more difficult to actually solve that problem on the team level because your hands are tied with the cap. You've got, uh, you've made commitments on personnel decisions. You've got egos at play. You've got coaches that you've uh, enabled with a lot of trust. Um, so there's just a lot of intricacies that go into these decisions. And it's easy to look at true Nowak and say, that's not working. And in the second week of the season and go, we need to, get rid of that guy and bring somebody else in. It's really easy to, to, to say that, but I would imagine that that decision for the team is, is quite complicated. Well, and then let's take this one step further. And I want you people to remember Brandon Browner because he was brought in. He was too tall, too big, too slow. That's the reason why he was playing in Canada. Um, they, they brought him in, they, they teamed him up with, um, Chris Richard, who taught him, you know, the kickstep technique and and the team allowed him to be physical and all that kind of stuff. And the first couple of weeks of the season, it was an absolutely dreadful looking uh, result. I mean, I wrote an article after the week. Uh, so it was 2012 after week two when the Seahawks got blown out by Pittsburgh saying it was time for the Brandon Browner experiment to end. Yeah, because. It was a mess, and I just I watched the film, and I just he is clueless. He's just getting burned on every play, and I was like just watching the film, and this isn't just like watching the game, or whatever. Like I'm actually studying the all twenty two and and watching everything. And I'm like this just isn't gonna work, and so I wrote that. I'm like it's time for that to end. I get why they did it. Um, I get why they're trying it, but it's not working. And then if you but the team stuck with him. And by mid-season, he had gone from being, I think, six weeks into the year, quarterbacks had a perfect um, quarterback rating throwing to him, the 158.3, which is a perfect quarterback rating in, um, in, in the NFL. 
And that's what they had when they were throwing to, to whoever uh, Browner was covering after six weeks. By the end of this season, it was like 88, which meant that if you think the about that, turnaround. it's complete turnaround. But it also, in order, if you're going to overcome that, that large of a sample size of really bad data, you have to have a lot of really good data uh, you know, to, to tack on there if you're thinking of it in terms of trends and, and that kind of stuff. So what that meant was that in the last 10 weeks of the season, he was playing like a pro bowler. And they got that out of him because they were patient early on. And so the team is going to look at that and go, okay, you know, there was a reason why Chris Richard was saying, no, he needs to keep playing. We need... We need to stick with this. He is worth the effort. Like, let's do it. Uh, it's worth a little pain now. It'll be worth it later. And he was, and Chris Richard was right. He was absolutely right. Um, they got so much out of Brandon Browner that no one ever would have expected. And it was the right thing to, to do to stick with him. I was wrong when I said it was time for the experiment to end. Um, the team really wanted Drew Nowak to do the same thing. He is more athletic. He's quicker. He's more agile. Um, better able to turn, you know, to use his strength. Um, and those kind of things. He had the right attitude as far as like his willingness to, to block through the whistle and all that kind of stuff. There were a lot of elements that looked really promising for Drew Nowak and Tom Cable wanted to give him a chance and let him learn um, and become that guy to grow into the job the way Brandon Browner did, but he never did. He was still making the same really dumb mistakes uh, yeah. in week six that he was making in week one of, of training camp. Um, he wasn't learning. He wasn't evolving. He wasn't improving. Well, they didn't even want to give him, they didn't want to give him a chance on uh, being a backup. Yeah, they literally they cut, him. cut him from the team. Yeah, he went from starter to starter to unemployed. And you just don't see that that often in the NFL. Nope. Pete stepped in and was like, no, we need to change this. They put um, uh, Patrick Lewis in there. And, I mean, Patrick Lewis is not a special player. He is a journeyman backup. Like, that's, yeah. that's, that's, his, that's his... And we were begging for him to come yeah. and save, save our season, essentially, he, at that point. And, he, and that, when you went from Drew Nowak to this journeyman backup... Everything improved like, tr- like instantly, and just in this huge. It was this huge improvement, and that just gives you an idea of just how things were. And once they kind of saw that, they were like, "Okay, this this it didn't work." They gave him between all of training camp and preseason, and then the first six weeks of the season, they gave him a huge leash to you know a lot of time to go through and figure this out. And he didn't improve at all. He just never got it. So they they cut bait and moved on. But yeah, and and to and. And that single decision tree, if you will, uh, really put into doubt, I think, Tom Cable's position on the team. Yes. At least with the fans. Yeah. Yeah. Because Because Pete loves him. Pete has tremendous faith in him um, beyond. I mean, it's just he's he's Pete's guy. But Mm -hmm. with the fans, I think that was the turning point where the fans said, you know what? That guy's judgment um, needs to be questioned. Well, and it's because, and part of it is if it was just this one thing, and you're like, okay, he he took loyalty a little too far, and 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 made some bad decisions um, because of that. Because it's but it's this one guy. We we can move past that. But it was more. There were there were more things than than that. We, you, there's more. There's more data here than just Drew Nowak. There's also right. Well, the, all the conversions and all that. I mean, there's all of, crazy. there's 
all of that, there were times when he was playing Sweezy when Sweezy was not ready and just looked lost. And, you know, and he's a conversion project. So why is he out there as a rookie when you have other options? You know, you've got, uh, they played Justin Britt at tackle and then at guard and then at center. And it was like, there's no, there's no knowledge of looking at your player and, the skills that he possesses and figuring out where you're going to get the most success out of him. You and there was also yanking guys around mid-season and making him change positions after, you know, yeah. two preseason games and yeah. there's just there's just a lot of things like that where it just didn't doesn't make sense. So, it's not just the Drew Nowak thing. There's a lot of reasons to question uh, Tom Cable, but But know, here we are again. Here we are again. Pete Pete loves him. He's going to continue to stick by him. And uh, Pete Carroll's going to need more data points, more years of bad judgment uh, and bad decisions before he is willing to make a change. And it really doesn't matter what his fans think of Tom Cable yeah. if Pete well, Carroll thinks he's a good And, and all Pete has job. to do is point to a trophy and point to another appearance in the Super Bowl and just go, you know what? I've got a Super Bowl-level uh, coaching staff, and I'm sticking with them. Yep, you know, and who's going to argue with that? I mean, you can argue with it, and we have um, <laughs> as as fans and writers and podcasters, you know, podcasters. But <laughs> you can't argue with overall success. And overall, the team has been very successful. And you can point to these little things like this, and sometimes they're not so little. But you can point to different elements of the team that is not su- as successful as other elements. But I really do think that you have to, if you're going to be fair, come around to the bigger picture and try to tie it all together. And um, you can't argue with success. So um, with that said, let's go through some of the other names on the staff. And why don't you, we don't really have time to talk about all of them as individuals, but if if you hear a name or want to talk about somebody in uh, specific, stop me and we'll we'll talk. Now, last week we talked about Michael Barrow, uh, the assistant uh, head coach of the linebackers and defense. Um, how about Dwayne Board? That's an interesting guy. Uh, he's been in the uh, was in the NFL as a 13 year uh, linebacker. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, Interesting guy. He he spent uh, six seasons with the Seahawks under uh, Mike Holmgren's regime from 2003 to 2008 as a defensive line coach. Um, pretty successful at that. Um, and he's back again as uh, in 2015 uh, with the Seahawks as an assistant um, defensive line coach. So, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think he went to Jacksonville. Um, with yep. Gus Bradley, yeah, yep. and and taught and and coached their defensive line, and then when Gus Bradley's staff got disassembled, he became unemployed, and so the Seahawks brought him back. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's a guy. He's one of those guys that his track record is is pretty. It, it's there. He does a good job of turning um, athletes into quality players, and so his resume kind of speaks for itself. So we've got uh, Dave Canales, wide receivers coach. Um, I think he was a USC guy, I think, mm-hmm. at, at one point with, with Pete. And he's brought him back in again. Another guy that I think um, one of Pete's sons, uh, Nate, is uh, involved with the wide receivers as well. He is. 
So, I mean, we've got some family. I think there's a, even another one, right, Brennan? Brennan, he's the is, he's the an assistant offensive line coach. Yeah, and he's probably there to spy for Pete Carroll. No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Shh, I did not say that. Out loud. No, no. Um, but he's there to help uh, Cable and uh, yeah, and report back to Pete Carroll. And um, we've got uh, Chris Carlisle, which is an interesting guy because he's the head strength and conditioning coach. He spent uh, nine years at USC as the strength and conditioning coach with Pete Carroll, and we hired him in 2010. So he's been with Pete for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they seem to do a good job. I mean, we really don't have, you know, there are some teams that are, have propensity for injuries and so forth. There are some guys that really ne- don't develop physically and so forth. We don't have any of those issues at all. I mean, nope. you even had to just take a look at uh, Fant in the offseason um, under Chris Carlisle's conditioning program for his first full offseason. And he put on like uh, 20, oh, close to 25 pounds of yes. muscle. Which is yeah. exactly what Fant needed. Yes, exactly. It is what he needed, and it, you know, we, it's hard with the strength and conditioning guys because you can look at, oh well, this player didn't develop, and you know, Paul Richardson's—he's still as skinny as he's always been, and whatever. But what you, you can't just put all of that on the the coach because some of it's the player, uh, both you know, if you whether it's work ethic or whether it's just their metabolism and their body type, they, they just don't have the ability to put on, you know, the weight and the muscle and that kind of stuff. So it's really hard to to judge a coach like that. And yes. what I what I tend to, to to say is ask the players and yeah. see how or see how, or if it's not or if it's not broken, don't fix it type of a thing because well, there's, that's there's really that all too. you yeah. all you can do is see like uh, for example, the Trailblazers uh, for those of you that are familiar with with that organization, see uh, Portland Trailblazers. Um, had a, a strength and conditioning coach when uh, Odin, Greg Odin, was here, right? And 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 there were a couple other issues uh, injury wise with the team um, besides that. But and then Odin had the the knee, and he had microfracture surgery, and he had a, a dislocated kneecap, and on and on and on. And it all kind of came back to: is the strength and conditioning coach? the right fit for the team is that you're doing a good job. And they eventually, they, the team initially backed him up, but eventually they went away from mm-hmm. him and hired a whole new regime and it hasn't had, haven't had any problems since. So that position can affect the team much more than uh, fans will ever know because it all happens in the background. So um, how about uh, Andre Curtis, defensive back coach? So he came so- in after Chris Richard. Uh, was promoted to defensive yeah, coordinator. That's got, it, it's an interesting thing because when you, if you look on paper, Andre Curtis is the defensive backs coach. If you go out onto the field during training camp, Chris Richard is still the defensive backs coach. He is still out there day in and day out with his hands in there. He is uh, teaching guys. He is working out with guys. He is like, yelling at guys when their footwork is sloppy. He's like, he is out there every day working with a defensive back. So I thought it was, it's you know, just going through this, I'm like, Curtis, it's his defensive back. So I'm like, in my head, he was an assistant defensive back coach. Yeah, but well, and he that, came from New Orleans as their assistant uh, secondary yeah. coach uh, uh, four years prior. So. Yeah, and so, so when I look at that and I go, okay, so that's, but that's, that's me. And what we don't know is what's going on in the meeting rooms is, 
Um, is yeah. Chris Richard running that uh, defensive backroom, or is, is Curtis running the, the defensive backroom? Um, and my guess is that Curtis is running it. And so what we see out onto the field is, well, you've got one of the one of the great teachers of defensive back technique. Um, in, you know, in the building, you're going to let him teach. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean he's got he is the only person doing, you know, coaching. Well, and you've got Thomas and Sherman and Chancellor in that room too. Yeah, exactly. So there's not a lot of direct supervision that's, that's neat. I mean, they're going to go through their, their program, their process, their film. The guys are going to remind those players that they've got these, these guys coming up this week and you really need to pay attention to these. But other than that, Mm-hmm. I think uh, Richard Sherman and uh, Thomas and Chancellor and some of those other guys are probably self-diagnosing quite a bit. Um, how about uh, Tom Donatel, a quality control defense guy? Now, what does a quality control guy do in the NFL, Keith? So what the quality control guys do is they are guys that basically help all the other coaches. And so they... Um, Detail they, guys. They, they, yeah, they... They track um, who's getting reps. They track, um, like, whether or not people are, you know, how often somebody is lining up exactly the way you want them to. Um, you know, it depends on what the coach is want. They, but they go through and they sit there meticulously with their clipboard and they they examine. Yep whatever it is that they are being told to examine on that day. Yep. And it can yep. vary greatly. And it's a job that requires a, an immense sense of detail yep. and the ability to suffer through a lot of tedium. <laughs> yeah. And statistics and yeah, uh, et cetera. Right. Yep. So that, but the, those are the type of guys that make the team run. I mean, without they, those guys, they, they do. The, yeah. Those the are team the te- falls apart. That tends to be the role where you see new coaches step in. So it's like, their first coaching job was as a quality control, blah blah blah, because you're not you're on the coaching staff, but you're not really a coach. You're, I mean, you are, but your what your your main tasks are. Um, a lot of it happens in the film room late at night after practice because you you look at the film of practice and you track all of that stuff and whatever the team needed you to and that kind of thing. So you're you're doing all that work helping the coaches, but then well, what do you do during? Um, you know, during practice, well, you get a chance to watch the other coaches and learn from the other coaches and, and interject in little bits here and there within your expertise and that kind of thing. But it's, it is a good, it's like a, it's like the, um, it's a starting point. It's, you know, it's the jumping off point of, of a lot of coaching careers. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, so I'm going to run through a string of names and you mm-hmm. stop me. Uh, Mondre G. He's an assistant strength and conditioning coach. He actually came over from Green Bay in 2010. Was recommended by uh, John Schneider to, to Carroll. So he's he's been with the team for uh, seven years. And then uh, John Glenn, assistant linebacker coach, um, hired February of 2012, and he's kind of had uh, different positions throughout. So. Um, quality control was one of his positions. He's now a defensive assistant and assistant linebackers coach. So that, you're right. It does give that opportunity to move up through the system. Uh, Will Harrier, uh, assistant quarterbacks coach. Um, I don't know anything about Will. How about you? 
Um, I actually, <laughs> I, honestly, I when you look at when I so we're, when you're when I'm at training camp and I'm watching, and I see the quarterbacks working with a coach. It is it's it's Carl Smith. It's the quarterbacks coach. I'm not sure I could recognize uh, Will Harrier out there on the field because I don't see him working with the quarterbacks. That doesn't mean he doesn't. That doesn't mean yeah. he's not a uh, a meaningful person in the uh, in the film room, in the quarterback room. You know, in helping you know the players uh, digest the the playbook and the game plan and all of that. It's just when I what I see on the practice field, I just don't see him. So I, but, but that's me, right? So that's so he was an assistant, he offensive assistant, and uh, from 2014 to 16, and then in 16 he took over the assistant quarterback responsibilities. So it it, it is interesting. I mean, all of this is fascinating. It would be it would be really fascinating to have a team guy to come on and kind of explain all these things in, in greater detail. But uh, we're doing our best here. How about Clint Hurt, defensive line coach? New guy originally, originally from uh, the Chicago Bears as an outside linebackers coach. Mm-hmm. Um, we just hired him in March. Uh, Travis Jones, senior defensive assistant, come on, came on in uh, 2013 uh, yep. with uh, Dan Quinn and um, kind of a, an assistant line coach uh, for the Saints. He's been around for about 12, 13 years uh, as a coach in the league. So but originally came on with Quinn, but Quinn didn't take him with him. So that's interesting. Well, um, Quinn was limited on the number of coaches he could take with him. And he, is that an unspoken role thing or is that in the contract? It's not in the contract. It's um, the Seahawks actually have the ability to say no, especially if you're taking someone on a lateral move. So you t- if you, if the Seahawks or if um, Quinn wanted to take a linebackers coach from Seattle and just move them over, um, the Seahawks can say no. And then there's also just kind of the agreement between Pete and Dan that would be like, okay, I'm going to let you take, you know, two coaches. Right. Don't take more than that. And, um, you know, he chose to take Mark Juan Manuel, who is an assistant defensive backs, and bring him over as a defensive backs coach. And he also took a name who we talked about last week that now I, my brain won't remember, um, as, who is an assistant offensive line. He took him over to become the offensive line coach. And those were really the guys that that Quinn took with him. And so he was limited on the number of guys that he could take. So he had to leave some people here. And so, and, and, um, you know, Jones is one of those guys that I'm sure he would have taken had he been given the opportunity to. Pat McPherson, tight ends coach. He's been here uh, since 2010. Mm -hmm. And before that he was with 11 years with Denver. I mean, these guys are lifers. Yeah, this guy's a, been around the game for a long time. This is a he's a lifer, and not only that, but he's a lifer position coach. He's not like this isn't someone who has become you know an offensive coordinator. Begin someone that was look your people were gonna gonna look at as a possible head coach. They they just didn't follow that that career trajectory. He's been yep. a he's been a tight ends coach and a good one um, for a long time, and that's just as far up the coaching ladder as he's ever made it. <laughs> and I think it's because that's as far up the coaching ladder that he wants to make it. I don't think he wants to have yeah. all of the um, responsibility and criticism and just all the junk right. that goes with, you know, right. getting into a more of a management position, like a coordinator job. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you actually look at this whole situation as a business, 
You know, some people just mm-hmm. don't want that advancement in, yeah, in their they career. They, nope. they want that job. They're fairly comfortable with it. And if they do a really good job at it and they can stay at it and they make a good, good salary and take care of their family, they're totally happy. They don't have to move around from city to city. Yep. You know, so that's a pretty good gig in the NFL. Uh, Ricky Manning Jr., uh, it's a familiar name, uh, hired uh, in uh, March of 2016, former NFL quarterback Ricky Manning Jr. Yeah, so. I, actually, when when they hired him, that was kind of one of those, huh, interesting, because he was one of those guys, he's, he's not overly big, he's never tremendously athletic, but he managed to put together a decent NFL career by working his tail off and... Um, making the most of opportunities when he got them and being willing to contribute on special teams and just trying to do whatever little things he had to do to stick on a roster. And those are the guys you want as your coaches because they're going to get that out of your current players. And so it's cool to see him there. The fact that he gets to work under a guy like Chris Richard, who's an, an amazing teacher, um, you know, is only going to improve his career. And I would be willing to bet that we see uh, Ricky Manning Jr. as a uh, defensive backs coach instead of an assistant defensive backs coach somewhere in the NFL fairly shortly. Chad Morton, running backs coach. So he was hired in 2014. He had uh, as an assistant uh, special teams coach after spending four seasons with the Green Bay Packers in the same role. And he switched over to running backs, and now he's in charge of the running backs room. Yeah, actually, it's um, this is a, a kind of a cool story because he is the guy that they he came in to help with special teams. He was an NFL running back. He had seven years in the NFL um, as a running back, um, and so he eventually moved over to the running backs room and has been helping um, Sherman Smith, who is the running backs coach for the last. Um, three or two years, and then now he gets a chance to take over and run the the, the, the actual room. Um, it's it, it's it's kind of cool to see a, a guy progress and that kind of stuff. It it also highlights that the fact that Sherman Smith, who was the Seahawks' leading rusher the first year the franchise existed, yep. is no longer with the organization because he went from you know he was he was the running back until um, Kurt Warner was drafted. And then he wasn't the running back anymore, and he was gone and whatever. But then he came back as a coach, and it's been kind of cool to have him here. And now he's gone. But so Chad Morton's ascension highlights Sherman Smith's absence. But yeah. one of the things that that when I look at him personally and and whatever, he is not the type of running back that the Seahawks have on the roster use that's a great observation he never played in a system similar to what seattle runs he was entirely a third down back a receiver out of the backfield he has more career receiving yards and receiving touchdowns than rushing yards and rushing touchdowns in fact he doesn't have a single rushing touchdown in his career and he's got four um uh receiving touchdowns but he is He's only 191 pounds. He's never going to run a guy over. He never played in a zone scheme. Do you think they give, got him in there for precise? I don't know if it's for precise, but I do. I look at that and it makes me wonder, um, one, are they looking more at those kind of backs? I mean, do they want guy? They want to improve the receiving ability of 
um, their their running back group as a whole. Um, and then it's also, I mean, you look at Sherman Smith didn't play in a zone blocking well, scheme. Let me he played in the this. power scheme, and he still was a good coach in that scheme. So it might just be that just because he's that kind of running back as a player doesn't mean he's he's limited to coaching that kind of back. So let me ask you this, and I could just be making this up, um, but I thought I heard somewhere uh, Tom Cable say that he works sometimes directly with the running backs and the running backs coach mm-hmm. um, for the running game of of the team. Yeah, so Tom is, Cable is the running game coordinator. Like they've actually given him a coordinator title, saying he's okay. a running game coordinator. Okay, so that so that there is some truth to what I just said. So how does he? Uh, work in conjunction with Chad Morton to put together a, a game plan. Well, because what what you have is, um, so Daryl Bevel co- still calls all the plays. He still develops the game plan. It's all about when are we going to run, how often are we going to run, where are we going to run, all those kind of things. But the actual play design, the X and O's scheme of 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 the scheme, you know, all of that. Uh, when it comes to the running game, because it's a zone scheme, uh, Tom Cable does that. He actually designs the running plays. He designs all the X and O's and all of that. And so he does, a, when he's teaching the offensive linemen what to see, where to block, where to go, when to, when to disengage on a combo block and all of that, he's also working with the running backs so that they see the same things. Because when you're reading a block and you're like, okay, so... The defensive tackle's blocked. I'm going to cut, you know, here through this hole. But then before you get there, uh, the guard disengages to move up to a linebacker, and now suddenly you're running right into yeah. Um, yeah. A, a defensive tackle. You have to you have to be able to recognize the blocking and read the blocking so that you can um, know what's going on. And so there's a lot of teaching of the running backs that's done by cable. It's it's. Uh... That's a that's just a really fascinating aspect of coaching that most fans really don't see or even pay attention to because I mean there's a lot to pay attention to in football as it mm-hmm. is in general anyway but these little details when you really drill down deeper how the coaches work together how they form the the scheme how they look at the players that they've got run plays specifically designed to accentuate accentuate the the uh, net positives for each player um, it's, it's fascinating, you know, yep. it really is to me. Yeah. I, one of the things that, that it's, it's, it is complicated. If you look at like the way these coaching staffs work, it's not quite as, as formulaic as, Oh, you know, X, Y, Z happen. And, and it's just that because these are, this is a team, right? And it's not just a team on the field, but it's a team in the meeting rooms and it's a team of coaches. Yeah. And, these coaches aren't working in a vacuum. Exactly. They're working together. Yeah. And they have to because you have to have everybody on the same page. And so there, there is a lot of overlap and gray area. And, you know, you see different things like that. You see Richard Sherman working with the wide receivers, even though he's a cornerback player. Um, but he'll get in there and work with them and coach a little bit and, and do some of that. And there's just when you see teams working together like that and you see guys going outside of their responsibilities to help elsewhere, um, and that it's encouraged, and you, the other the where they're going is accepting of uh, the extra help and the extra coaching and the extra teaching. Um, those are the teams that you you see tend to be the teams that are 
you know, yeah. competing for the playoffs over and over again. And when those right. that are those that are very rigid and very structured and, you know, the guys in the linebacker room don't even know the guys in the defensive back room's name, uh, those are the teams that you see struggle. And so it's, it's just a well, culture aspect. R- right. And a lot of the teams that work together better are better positioned to pick up where they left off in the prior year. And those that are completely separated, like you said, really just end up having to start over every year. Um, at least that's that's the way I look at it. And even the Seahawks, you know, the, the one of the best coach teams in the NFL um, have that tendency to really start slow in the, in the first of the year where you think, wow, they left off in January just smoking. Why can't they just come back out in September and just start where they left off? And it's, it's easier said than done, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we've got a few more names, Keith, and then we're going to wrap this up. And I'll just run through these real quick. Uh, Pat Rule is an assistant offensive line coach, came on uh, in 2010. Uh, Prior to that, he was with uh, Pete at USC. Uh, We've talked about Brian Schneider already. Uh, Carl Smith, quarterback's coach, you mentioned him briefly. Um, That's that's an interesting one because he's been here uh, basically the entire tenure of Russell Wilson. Yep, he actually came on um, um, and was here the the Tavares Jackson year. Um, and then, yes, but he, 2011. he, he was not the coach. He was, he never coached Matt Hasselbeck. Um, so he, when, when Hasselbeck left, um, and they, they moved, they moved to a more, uh, mobile quarterback, that kind of situation. They brought in a new coach that could work with that kind of quarterback and was more familiar with it. So I thought that was kind of an interesting coaching change. And I think he's done a good job. I mean, they got a lot out of Tavares Jackson, who was not a particularly good player. And then they've developed Russell Wilson into like an absolute stud. So it's been uh he's been a good coaching acquisition. Yeah. And it's guys like that, that take a guy like Russell Wilson and turn him into an all pro basically, uh, that end up moving along and having other opportunities. But it looks like he, he might be one of those guys that just likes to be right where he's at, you know, and who wouldn't pretty decent, uh, pretty decent spot. Uh, Nick Sorensen, secondary coach, came on in 2013 um he's been a started the nfl ranks as a volunteer defensive quality control coach um at youngstown state following his his uh, nfl career so that's how guys start you know everyone kind of yeah, wants to know well, how was, did he get started in he coaching? wasn't well, paid you just kind of show up and you say i'll do whatever <laughs> you guys want me to that's how you start yep. you know a lot so, of this so unless you've you've got a big name Sorensen's a guy that you'll recognize if you've been to training camp because he is tall, he is skinny, he's got long hair, and he's out there during all the special teams drills, yelling at guys um, when you know they take a bad angle or that kind of stuff. And so it's it's what you know he is. He's very vocal. He's very. Um, Animated. Just, you can't miss him. He's just out there, and, and he's very unique looking and, and all of that. So he's one of those guys you just can't miss him. But you'll notice that his title no longer says assistant special teams. And yep. so now he's he's working with the secondary. He's working with the safeties and the cornerbacks. And I'm uh, – well, I just – special teams practices are going to be a little less um, fun to watch. Yeah. I, hope he's, I hope he still gets a chance to get out there with that giant pad that he holds that – you know, guys are one on one. You know, practicing being the, either the gunner or the guy blocking the gunner, and he'll just have this. He has his body size pad, and he'll just go run over and and 
and like and hit people with them from behind and that's they're like funny. what's going on because he but he's just <laughs> that's the type well, of stuff kinda, you're gonna he, deal with so he kind of took over from ken norton jr as far as the guy that was the most vocal out there absolutely and, uh, yeah so let's see if somebody else somebody else joins him i've always so, liked watching him coach it's, he's he's a fun guy to watch so the, the last name on the list at least uh, last but not least is jamie uh yancher Assistant strength and conditioning coach. We just wanted to mention him. I don't know anything about him, but he's the last guy on my list. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about him either. But I tell you, um, the one thing is, if you so, if you're listening to this and you 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 want a little bit of a laugh, go on to the Seahawks.com website and the coaching page and all that. Scroll down to the very bottom because he's the last coach listed, and just look at his profile pic because his eyes look like he <laughs> is about to kill someone. Like just straight up, he looks. <laughs> Like he is super pissed off and it's yeah. just like, you you photographer person, you are not making it back to your car. <laughs> like, wow, this guy looks, he is not happy getting his picture taken right there. So I thought that was kind of entertaining. Well, I think too, um, and it should we should mention, um, we did pull a, quite a bit of our information off of uh, the Seahawks.com website um, as far as all the names are concerned, but you can go onto the Seahawks website, look at that coaching list and click on the picture and it'll open up another page with a, basically a full page bio on all the different coaches, which Mm -hmm. is interesting and fascinating to do. I just didn't, I didn't have time to do, but one or two, but I'm, I'm actually going to take some time and go back there and, and take a further look at some of these guys because I think it's interesting. So yeah, we also just recognized we weren't going to have time to talk about all these guys in great detail. So we are we are now two hours into talking about the coaching staff between the first episode of this. Uh, yeah, do we and, have and any listeners one. left, Keith? I I don't even know. I don't know if you're if you are still listening after two hours of us talking about uh, the coaching staff, please let us know. Yeah, let like, us know, and I'll send you a T-shirt. Yeah, and, and, and not a Hawks Playbook T-shirt. I'm just going to send you a T-shirt. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so we're done for this episode of the Hawks Playbook podcast. So if you are still with us, thanks for listening and enduring. But please uh, don't forget to. Uh, like go into iTunes and subscribe so that uh, we can build that subscription base and uh, leave us a, a, some feedback and, and kind of rate the episodes on there as well. That helps us uh, come onto the website and take a look at all the other episodes we've got um, archived at hawksplaybook.com. You can find Keith on Twitter as usual at Myers NFL and I am at NWC Hawk and you can find the show at Hawks playbook. Um, anything else today? Nope, just stay tuned for next week because next week we're um, you and I are getting together with a bunch of homebrew and we're yep. going to talk tailgating and expectations for the coming season, which will be fun yeah. because I'm sure and our that expectations will... in the beginning will be different than our expectations <laughs> at the end once we've had a few um, tasters I'm of sh- homebrew. I'm, sure so. I'm sure they will be. Yeah. So that uh, episode is going to actually be recorded on the weekend. Uh, either Saturday or Sunday and we will put that out the following day which will probably end up being on a Monday so a week from this coming Monday will be that next uh, podcast so thanks for joining us and until next time we'll see you and we'll see you later have a great uh, week and uh, enjoy the sun enjoy the summer everyone thanks for listening The Hawks Playbook Podcast is brought to you by the Fan Sided Network and 12thManRising.com. 
Find our podcast on the website or subscribe on iTunes. You can find both Bill and Keith on Twitter. Bill is at NWC Hawk and Keith is at Myers NFL.